Welcome to episode 102. Today, Dr. Diane Lapp joins us to talk about her book called Text Complexity, Stretching Readers with Texts and Tasks. Welcome to the Teaching Multilingual Learners podcast. This podcast celebrates teachers who answer the calling to serve multilingual students and their families. Your beautiful smile, your beautiful life are waiting for you to shine bright. It's never too early or late to start to rise up and shine. Your beautiful smile, your beautiful life are waiting for you to shine bright. It's never too early or late to start to rise up and shine. Teaching reading is one of the most difficult tasks for me. I feel like I'm handed a giant ball of yarn all knotted together. That's exactly why Dr. Lapp and her colleagues have written this book to help us name the different factors that make a text complex and how to teach reading the skills necessary to process complex texts. Dr. Diane Lapp is a distinguished professor of education at San Diego State University. Her research and instruction focuses on issues related to struggling readers and writers, their families, and their teachers. An instructional coach at the Health Sciences High and Middle College in San Diego, she has recently returned to the classroom to teach sixth grade English and earth science. Dr. Diane Lapp is also a member of both the California and the International Reading Hall of Fame for her dedication to reading instruction. Now, on to today's podcast. I'm always so honored to have legends in the field, particularly legends in literacy, come join us. And today we have another legend, Dr. Diane Lapp. Welcome, Dr. Lapp, to the Thank podcast. You. Thank you. Welcome. Um, we've already listened to your introduction. Would you tell us about an event that has really informed your practice? Well, I think that, you know, as long as I've been a teacher, I've had lots of them. Um, but one that has recently in the last few years informed my practice um, has been that I have been working with middle and high school students in addition to being a university professor. And in my early years of teaching, I was an elementary school teacher. But my practice grew, I think, when I saw that students in middle school and high school are still struggling to learn how to read. That some place in their lives, their school lives, they've missed the opportunity to learn how to do that. And so in the middle school and the high school um, where I work with, you know, my friends and your friends, Doug Fisher and Nancy Fry, uh, we developed what we called the literacy lab so that we could scaffold skills and instruction for middle school and high school students so that we could get them on target for reading. And one of the I, reasons that we did this, what happened to us was we saw that many of these students were not performing um, as they should be in a classroom. They didn't have school behaviors that they were eliciting. 
And we realized that they didn't want other people to know that they were not able to read the texts in a group. They couldn't read and comprehend the text by themselves. And so we decided to do something about that. And that's how we developed the Literacy Lab and um, worked pretty much one-on-one -on -one with those students as they got stronger. Uh, we moved them into small groups of instruction to help scaffold those skills for them. But it was so interesting to me because they were missing many of the skills that you think you're going to teach a first grader or a second grader. Uh, they didn't have phonemic awareness. They couldn't um, decode multisyllable words. They couldn't understand the words and read them fluently enough to be able to comprehend them in a passage. So those are the kinds of things that um, really affected them and really affected my practice. You're speaking to all the language specialists out there when you shared that story, because I wrote down the words, social language is not academic mastery. Right. And so this year, I'm, I'm working with a group of eighth graders. Well, I teach eighth grade social studies. And during around January, I'm sitting with this student and we're reading this text and I realize, oh my goodness, you understand the words. You can pronounce the words, but you don't understand this text at all. And then I felt like I had failed this student and I let the student have, uh, go through two units without really sitting down with that kid. And so now you're ta really talking about, yes, what looks like they, it looks like they've come with all these skills and yet they don't. And so can you talk to us, tell us more about that? Like why, why is tech so hard for kids? Well, um, if you think about what makes a text complex, that gets at that, that question. And so I guess to answer that, it's both simple and complex. Um, it involves who's doing the reading and who's doing the listening. For example, you can take you know, a, a text that we all know and love like E.B. White's Charlotte's Web, and most of us know that text so well. And we could say, well, is that text appropriate for fourth grade where it has been traditionally shared? Uh, would it be better used as a third grade book since it has a, a Lexile level of about 680? Or should we use it in a second grade uh, where we could serve, uh, you know, to use it to help stretch the comprehension of young readers? Or should we use it as a read aloud for first graders? And I know, Tan, that you're probably thinking the same thing I'm thinking. Use it in all those places. Use it differently in all those places. And we know that the complexity level or what makes a text uh, complex is both quantitative features and qualitative features. It's the reader who's you know, interacting with the text and it's also the tasks that are being asked of those students. And it's not just a text like um, Charlotte's Web. It's also lots of texts in schools. You know, one of the popular texts was The Hate I Give by Angie Thomas. Well, who was that? appropriate for. And even if the students in a fourth or fifth grade could read those words, what about the um, cognitive level that they had to have the maturity level in order to understand that? You know, even Harry Potter and the Hunger Games. Oh, my heavens, the Hunger Games, you know, kids were devouring that. And I was thinking to myself, do you know what's really 
being talked about in that text. And then just recently, um, this year, I had the, the luxury, I think, of teaching 11th grade. And we talked about uh, the text 1984 and what a complex text that was for them. Uh, fortunately, I was there with them to do the reading of that text. But um, so lots of features make a text complex, not just uh, a lexile level. You wrote, you said qualitative, quantitative, the task and readers. And I wrote down the words, uh, the title, Yes, Ma'am, by <laughs> Langston Hughes. Yeah. And so that's, yes, by that Langston text, Hughes. Yes. That text is at a fourth grade reading level. Right. But I use it with my seniors and my uh, 11th graders. <laughs> yeah. And they, the, the deep, rich complexity of like metaphors and analogies. And, and of course, I. We can use it in different grades, grade four, but also grade 11 and grade 12. It's the tasks that we ask kids. And can you talk more about the, what are the quantitative and qualitative? Well, you know, there are, as I said, there's about, there's four major factors that we need to consider when we're thinking about um, texts. And so there are the quantitative measures, the qualitative measures, um, the reader, the reader who's doing the reading and then the task that the reader is being asked to do. And so if you just, uh, I can say them very quickly to you because um, most of the people who are listening to this probably are literacy teachers. And so they know how insufficient it is to think of only quantitative features because quantitative features are countable features. They're things like sentence length and you know how many, um, clauses are in a sentence, and that indeed makes it more complex. They're thinking about the arrangement of the words and the syntax, and is it easier to say um, the spy walked cautiously or cautiously walked the spy? I mean, so syntax matters. Vocabulary matters. Are they where words? Are they familiar words? Are they multi-syllable words? As I was saying, uh, my middle schoolers and high schoolers were having trouble decoding and understanding multisyllable words when they met them in text. So that makes some, uh, a text much more uh, difficult, complex, not difficult, because with a teacher, the text can become less difficult. Yes. But we know that more must be involved than just what you can count. There's also quality, qualitative features of a text. Um, and so th those features are like things that the author does with you and for you, like the text structure, how the author organizes the text, what cues and clues they give you along the way, uh, what literary devices are involved, like irony and repetition, and are there data charts that are included? You know, tables and charts make it different. So those are also all um, features that matter. And then the reader, as I've said, who's interacting with that certainly plays a, a big role in that. So difficulty depends on who's doing the reading, what kind of experience they've had, how interested they are, what are their cognitive capabilities for that text? What do they know about that topic? Um, can they be, you know, expanded? Can the teacher help them to expand them uh, by building accuracy and fluency and comprehension. 
also motivation and background. If I'm motivated, you know, we know if I'm, you're motivated to read something, you stretch yourself. And then if you have a teacher beside you stretching you also, you get even more proficient at reading that task. task. So qualitative, quantitative, the reader who's doing the reading, and then the task that the teacher is asking them to do. You know, is the task relevant? Are the kids involved in the task? Um, have they experienced success with tasks similar to that? Um, are they working as a, in a collaborative group on the task? Um, is it theme-based? So they've seen other texts around this topic as well. That all those matters. So in the company of peers and also an expert teacher, most texts can be read yes. and stretched. And that's why, you know, we talk so much about let's not just get kids at a level that's called their independent reading level. Let's challenge them beyond uh, where they are. Let's be right beside them, you know, on the, on, on the side with them, supporting them and learning how to read um, and being interested in reading more and more complex types of texts. I wrote down the word background knowledge because uh, for language learners, that's huge because there's text that we give kids. Like, let's say that someone is giving me a text about baseball, which I know almost nothing about. <laughs> <laughs> Yet my friend who plays baseball would have such a high, uh, rich set of assets that they can pull from to draw from to understand. <laughs> You know, Dan, I think that you and I were talking about this earlier. I think we as teachers all experienced that during this pandemic when we were bombarded with all the new technology terms and trying to read. You know, I tried to take a little course to get myself prepared to teach online. There were so many unfamiliar words in there for me that I had to have a tutor help me with that so I could learn. So one of my colleagues became my tutor in helping me to do that. And that's exactly what I'm talking about. If you get a kid interested in a book um, and then you are there to support them and help them model for them how they find language, model for them how they unlock that meaning, the world is theirs. Instead of putting them in books that are too hard and just leaving them there. I think that's the problem. We either put them in books that are too easy yes. and so they're not challenged or sometimes by mistake, we get them in a text that's too hard and um, they can't succeed either. Right. right. I think you're also speaking again to teachers of multilinguals because sometimes often they're given text way above their ability and that yeah doesn't stretch kids it snaps their spirits oh i love that snaps it doesn't stretch <laughs> it snaps you yeah, exactly and so uh, let's talk about now that you've beautifully outlined the four factors that make text can make text complex and by the way i when you talked about um putting kids in groups and reading i like applauded because that's what i do with my kids because i think like dr uh Piget said that all learning is social vygotsky that all learning oh right. right so now how do we well, look how much we like to look how much we learned again going back to ourselves you know 
I was with several other teachers who were trying to learn all we needed to know in order to be able to teach online. We helped each other. We shared. We talked. Uh, if we got a new technique, we shared it with each other. We showed it. And we didn't have to just show it once. This was what else I was so interested in, in my own learning. They had to show it to me multiple times. I had to practice it. It really was a gradual release model where um, they would introduce me. I would practice it. I would practice it alone. I would practice it with them. So if we really think about the things that we know about gradual release and supporting kids through scaffolds, we saw ourselves involved in that. I mean, we could write papers about ourselves as, as learners because we really just experienced in, it in the last year. Yes, we got to really experience what it was like for kids who are confused, right? Yeah, so. right, exactly. And, and one of the things that I learned, you asked me when I began, what did I learn? I've always, I've never been very fearful about asking for help. I think because I was a second sister and I had a first sister who I thought could do everything. And one of the things that she could always do and can still do is she could make everything easy for me. And so I never had one bit of fear about asking for help. And I found that I still had that characteristic. And so um, I never grew up thinking that if you ask for help, it had anything to do with your ability. I thought it had to do with what you knew right then. And that's what I've always tried to also show my students. This has nothing to do with how smart you are. It has to do with you and where you're going and what you have planned for yourself. So that was such an eye opener for me to still be able to ask for help and I could see myself incrementally growing <laughs> in my knowledge base. So. I really appreciate you sharing that story because that definitely relates to language learners because they think at times that they are not smart like other people. And that's totally not true. They just don't have the skills yet. Or the language. Yes. Because as I said to you, that's the basis is the word, the language. And if you don't have all those right, at least we as adults right now, if we don't have all the technology terms, when someone tells you to, uh, to, I didn't even know how you start Zooming. I mean, we all had to learn that. We learned about breakout rooms. We all did. Uh, we learned how to, uh, you know, start out and, and have the kids engaged and how we could keep them engaged. Right. And that was all brand new and it was all brand new vocabulary for us as well as technique. Right. And I think this is where the SEL can come in when we start teaching kids. Yes. We can say, this is a really tough text and look at the things you did to understand it. So it's not mm -hmm. really about you as a person. It's about, oh, developing the skills to get over difficult experiences. That's such a good point by pointing out to them. Um, I'm going to remember that, that you just taught me that. Be sure to remind my students of all that they just did uh, to master some kind of knowledge or some new, you know, learning. So what did they go through in order to have that happen? Well, I learned that from your colleague, uh, Dr. Uh, uh, Fisher, because he always said, always integrate SEL and never just have it as an extra program. Right. Always, right. So. And, you know, he really does that when he's 
working. Uh, he's a wonderful model for that, watching him teach students, you know, because I, I have, again, I, I said, the fortune that we're a good fortune that we're all in the same school. And so we get to observe each other teaching a lot. And um, yes, uh, the kids are crazy about him. And I think that's one of the reasons they are because he never forgets that. Right. I mean, I just, when I watched his webinars and I watched and I listened to him talk, you can tell that all three of you really love and believe in kids. And we are so fortunate that you've opened up your classrooms for us to peer in through the books and the webinars that you offer. I hope you come and visit us now, now that I know you're right in Philadelphia. <laughs> we're, we're back open for business this fall. So you should come on out and visit us. Oh, it would be a dream to not just visit, but to work there. <laughs> yeah. Oh, wow. One day. <laughs> okay, one day. One day. Um, so let's now talk about what can we do? You actually kind of started talking about chapter six of your book, which is about modeling for students, the gradual release module. So now we know that text can be complex for various reasons. What can we do to help kids? Well, you know, I just can't talk enough about modeling um, because I think that it really lets our students look into our minds, look into our actions. They not only see what we're doing well, they can also hear what we're struggling with. And as we know, when you're letting someone look in your mind and you are talking with them about how you're learning something, I think that also supports our clarity as teachers. And I've been trying um, to increase my clarity, uh, not only, um, with my students, but with everybody, my graduate students and my college students as well. Because as you know, uh, from all Hattie's work, that um, teacher clarity has an effect size of 0.75. And we know that an effect size of 0.4 indicates for us a year's worth of growth. And so with teacher modeling, I think that we can really let kids look inside our minds uh, to see how we are analyzing voca the vocabulary or the, the some of the features that I've mentioned, the text structure. Um, how am I, you know, growing my knowledge about a character? Um, how do I keep track of the different incidences um, that are occurring within a text. If I'm reading something that isn't a novel, how do I keep track of all the new vocabulary words? What kind of a chart am I using? You know, I've learned that to show them charting because I had to do such in-depth uh, note-taking in order to support myself as a learner this uh, last year, that that's one of the things that I've been pointing out to my students, um, to show them how my struggles became my efforts to succeed. And I showed them that through notes that I took. And, and then, I'm would, then I'm trying now to model for them and work with them on how their struggles uh, can enhance their learning. So I think it's all that teacher clarity that comes across uh, when we are doing uh, modeling, letting people look inside and breaking it down into small pieces. When people just say, oh, go ahead and do a Zoom. Oh my goodness. 
Let's back up and start with defining the vocabulary. Let's now put that into play. Let's practice it together. Let's give me a chance to try it without you. Uh, it's the whole gradual release, you know. So our students need models and explanations and demonstrations. Um, if we want them to continually increase and comprehend um, or comprehend increasingly more and more robust texts. I wrote down the word clarity is not assigning, clarity is modeling. Yes. Oh, because we, yeah, and I think we've learned that from John Hanks. Yes, yes, definitely. So, what would that look like when we are modeling? Would you model a whole chapter, a whole paragraph, a, a, a section? Well, you know, we could do a whole uh, another podcast on um, demonstrating a close reading for you. I did a lot of close reading modeling this year. And um, what you have to decide with a close reading is that you are going to work with the students either at, you know, you go back through a text multiple times and you go back through that text so that you can um, understand what the text is about, get a general view, overview of it. And then just like I mentioned some of those features, you might uh, do a close reading of just the way the author used language. I mean, when I was just doing 1984 with my 11th graders, the language in that is just incredible. And so I did several close readings with them where we were looking at language because we were looking in that book at, and this was one of the... Uh, areas that I focused on uh, modeling for them and doing close readings. What, what, look at the language that's being used in this text versus the idea that this society is trying to limit language. So what a contrast here. And it's those kind of features that should be part of close reading. Pointing out, you know, getting a general overview during the, the first read. And I don't want to just say first, second, third read. You know, I've written a lot about this. And so when I'm talking about a first read, a first read could have several going back. A second read where I'm looking at the language and the text structure, could I could go back to that nine times. Um, a third read that, that might be looking more at um, uh, getting a, bigger picture of what the author's trying to convince me of might take me five more times to go back. So I think that we led teachers astray by saying first read, second read, and third read, when indeed we meant during the first read, we're going to get a general overview. It might take us five revisits to do that. During the second big read, we're going to look at the language and the structure, but that's not going to happen in one read. And during the third read, which is multiple attempts to go back and see what we're being persuaded to believe, um, contrasting with other, other pieces of literature or, or um, exposition that we've learned how, that we've read. So it's, it's figuring out, I often think to myself, what are my big takeaways that I want my students to have from this text? And then once I know that and I have my learning intentions very well defined within my own mind, I then break it down so that I can say, this is what I'm going to do a close reading with you on. I'm going to model this. Now you're going to try a close reading um, because they can also do, you know, 
a close reading doesn't just have to be between the teacher and the whole class. Um, a close reading can happen in a small group, or you can have uh, part of a close reading done with a, a group of kids, um, and with one of the kids taking the lead as the reader. So uh, it works in many different ways, and we have made many uh, videos on that. And um, as you know, I've written books about that and articles and done videos. And so I think close reading is one of the very most important ways that we model reading for students, model uh, how we comprehend right. and let them look inside our minds. Right. And I, when you said that, I wrote down the word blacksmith and apprentice. Oh, yeah. Right? Right. Because we're really showing the kid, hey, watch me do this part. Here's my hammer as I'm going to head, watch me how to do this. Now your turn. Because we, the assigning would be here, go make the, go make the shoe, uh, uh, horseshoe. But the blacksmith was a, watch me bend, watch me put it in the fire, watch me take it out. And then let's hear, let's have you try. Right. And mm -hmm. so I think that's the main thing because when we, I read in another text, I think it was by uh, Penny Kittle. She said, uh, and Kelly Gallagher, they said, Reading is invisible, but there are very distinct tasks that we're doing while reading. And the kids have to see the tasks that we're doing. And the only way that happens is by us modeling that. Mm -hmm. So true. Right. And you, and I also wrote down the layers. You also helped me understand, like, we could do multiple readings of it, but we it can, you know, and it, you might what in one day. The other thing is that we think we have to get all finished with the text in one day. You might be focused on the language and looking at the different ways the author has used that language. And so your close reading takes you back multiple times to look at language or the way the text has been structured and laid out. So um, it can go on for days or little clippets throughout. And that's how the way that I did it with my 11th graders. Um, I would do a little clippet of a close reading for them and then have them talk about it. And then I would have them uh, at their individual, you know, when, because we weren't together, I would have them in breakout rooms, uh, which I learned how to do. So my new grouping became breakout rooms and in breakout rooms, they would have a task to look at a feature of the structure or a feature of the language and to think about how Orwell was positioning us to see the contrast between the language that he was using, and then the idea that they were shrinking our, the language use um, of the people in Oceana. Right. So um, I, I think, you know, I guess I left that 11th grade this year thinking that the, where, the way our world is right now, 1984 should be a must of a read again for every person. Oh. Um, and we should have some national conversations uh, about that, about what we learned from that text. Yes, that this is why we need poets. This is why we need authors. Absolutely. They help us see in a different way. I constantly tell my s students who I teach social studies, they say, history doesn't repeat, it just rhymes. Yeah. Right? And I was telling kids about, uh, interestingly, during the January, January 6th insurrection, we were learning about how Hitler came to power and all the ways that he used coercion to come to power and we're like, hey kids, I want you to see the ter how does what we're learning right now and what's really happening in life, how is 
history repeating? How, how is history rhyming? Mm-hmm. And have them, yes. And I see, and I, I think that what you just said, is such a sign of a good teacher that you didn't tell them the answer, that you said, think about this. Take a look at this. That's what I tried to do also, because I did not want to indoctrinate my 11th graders about anything. I wanted them to see if they saw any parallels between their world today and the world of 1984. Um, And never telling them my opinion of it. I wanted them to do that. Well, that's the same thing we can do with young children when we go back and think about Charlotte's Web and Wilbur. And when we think about the Hunger Games and all those texts, that's what effective teachers do. They cause kids to think about texts and issues and ideas, not to memorize what the teacher thinks, but to, you know, delve in there and figure it out yourself so that you can become a thinker who thinks long forever without us. That reminds me of, that connects to the idea of relevance and motivation. When kids feel like they're reading not for an assessment, but they're reading for what lessons they can learn from life and how that text can reflect their own lives, then they will feel like they're going to be they're going to want to read more. And, and it's that interaction too. I know you and I talked about this before about the peer engagement. So having the teacher step to the side and let the kids have conversations because um, my students, um, even though we were doing this through zoom and we were in the our chat box you know the whole world of school changed um and some of them did not have their videos turned on for lots of reasons and the reasons were very valid that there was too much noise in their home so they could only talk in the chat box or they lived in crowded quarters and they didn't want us looking they didn't have a nice clean uh, kitchen like you <laughs> or a study that belonged just to them like i have they shared uh, two or three rooms with six or seven people and so you know we made allowances for them but they still got together in breakout rooms and they wrote through the chat they did the very best they could and i think they learned something also about themselves and their endurance because they all showed up um, because because i use my old irish catholic guilt and tell them how my heart will be broken if they aren't there <laughs> so so they show up they show up even if they only say a couple of words, they show up because they don't want to break my heart. So um, I, I think that they learned about endurance as well and perseverance. And so when we're talking about kids coming back to school with learning loss, I don't, I'm, I'm not feeling, Tan, that they have that because I think they've learned so much about introspection and about themselves as human beings and uh, what they can tolerate and what pushes them over the brink. I think they've gained 10 years in their maturity just from what they experienced last year. So uh, I'm feeling, uh, you know, I feel very positive about kids. So uh, I'm looking forward to seeing them again and getting to talk face to face to see if all the things I believe they've learned, they've learned. It's funny how the media is saying learning loss. And it's funny that doesn't come from teachers. It comes no. from 
outside the teaching. Because we've been with them. So, <laughs> so we've seen what they've experienced and how they've grown. I think they're, they're so much more mature than, you know, uh, kids their age two years ago, just because of what they endured. You know, I would have kids in my class who would be would send me a text and say, I you, you might not see me in the chat right now because I'm I'm fixing a bottle for the baby. Oh. Um, but I'm listening to you. I'm listening to you. So, I mean, that kind of responsibility doesn't happen sitting in a classroom when you're fooling around with all your friends. That, that's what I mean. They've gained so many things that uh, and I and I saw my own grandchildren, you know, we put together a a learning pod for them and they were supporting each other and helping each other. And um, that kind of peer support, uh, I think was extensive across homes and uh, family groups. Yeah, I had a student who's a sixth grader and he had to oftentimes babysit his sister when his mom and dad were working right, during class. And I was like, yeah. you're a sixth grader and you're doing that? And yeah. you're still participating? I am blown away. And that's it. They were still participating the best way that they could. Yes. They were trying so hard. Right. And and they were so honest in telling you. Right. I mean, they weren't skipping out on, well, at least they didn't skip out on me. And I know that my colleagues felt the same thing, that they were there telling us, even if they would go for a minute, they would send us a private text and say, I have to go. I'll be back in two more minutes. So we wouldn't have even known they were gone. <laughs> well, I would have loved to be a student in your class. <laughs> thank, you for, thank you for saying that. Let's talk about chapter eight and nine. So chapter eight, what are peer-led tasks and how do, we, how do they scaffold reading? Well, peer-led tasks are some of the ones that you and I were just talking about. Um, they benefit from the discussions they have with each other. Look at all I've learned all just in this hour talking to you. You've given me so many new ideas, so many things to think about. That's what focused conversation, I think, is about. And that's, for me, what peer-led tasks are about, that the teacher has a focus um, that she wants to involve students with a question or um, get them to entertain a certain idea, allow them a chance to draw some conclusions. Um, and I think that it helps them to better understand material. So uh, peer-led tasks for me are synonymous with uh, collaborative conversations yes. um, that kids do together. And as they, as they collaborate, things get clearer to them. The teacher is often on the side listening, um, you know, giving input. Uh, the teacher, of course, oftentimes is the one who has identified the thought-provoking text and then asks questions, pops into a collaborative conversation and say, says, what do you think? And why are you thinking that? And I just heard that you disagreed with him. Why are you disagreeing? Uh, in a positive way, not that, oh my, you can't disagree, but you know, what are you thinking? But and, and but one of the things that I found out was that, and especially in a breakout room, collaboration doesn't just happen. Yes. Collaboration has to be uh, felt as it's part of a classroom community, that you have some responsibility for this, um, and that you have to be engaged in it. So I think that 
by the teacher have a very clear focus about what he or she is doing and also offering the other thing that I think, and you'll think this too, probably because of English learners, having some language frames that supports kids in starting those conversations in um, working towards achieving the tasks that are being uh, uh, asked of them can, can happen through having language frames and scaffolds available, available to them. And the teacher is one of the best scaffolds because the teacher pops in and out. You know, I would run from breakout room to breakout room. Um, so, yeah. So I think peer conversations matter. I think we know how much, how important language is. Can you talk? Can you talk about a topic? I think one of the uh, best things that happened to me as a school learner was the a couple of the teachers who were my teachers in high school, they had played a game with you and you just had to reach in and take a topic. This was an English class and start talking about that topic. And they worked with you to have a cognitive frame about that topic, about uh, introduce the listeners to what the topic is about, you know, tell them two facts on that topic, um, invite their conversation to the topic. And, you know, that has carried over for me, even when I'm having conversations now, even a social conversation. And I think that not just letting talk happen, but helping kids structure and have a mental frame for uh, the peer talk that they're doing. It, it enables them. It makes them secure in it. They just like the language frames, they, they feel secure that they have some framework uh, for organizing their ideas. Well, you, the language specialists in you came out. Oh, <laughs> I've been a reading teacher a long time. <laughs> and a reading teacher is a language specialist. Oh, absolutely. Right. Yeah, absolutely. So I loved when you talked about uh, student led tasks because I felt my biggest epiphany in teaching so far in my 15th year of teaching is that students come to school not to learn. They come to school to socialize with their friends. Yes. So if we can structure learning activities where students interact with each other, they'll be more likely to engage in the task. And your chapter eight of your book really talks about that. Right. And you know, um, one of the things that we did at our school, we had genius hour, Yes, which amazed me the things that they would think of that they wanted to study and that they would go about investigating a topic and really studying and, and sharing ideas together. And maybe two or three people together would investigate it. And I think that happens to us all the time in our lives. You know, it's such fun to share this hour with you. And so I'm going to think that's our genius hour. That <laughs> you initiated it, invited me, and we've had quite a good conversation, I think. And I think that when we allow our students, invite them to have that freedom, to think of a topic they're interested in, to study it with somebody else, to build the language base. It just amazes me, um, the reading and language that um, gets scaffolded in. Uh, sometimes, though, when they call me in to offer support, I have to tell the truth and say, I have to run and read something very quickly to have enough knowledge on the topic because they're interested in so many things I don't even know about. But I think that 
makes a good community of learners because one of the things that I also say to them is give me a couple of minutes because I'll show you what I do when I don't know about a topic. I start building myself a, a, a scaffold of knowledge. And so I show them how I go back, start reading, getting little pieces, keep adding information. Um, so um, it's kind of like a, a do-it-yourself scaffold. And I do that in notes. I show them this is how I learn about this topic. So we only have a few more minutes. I just have two more questions to talk to you about. Okay. So the last question, well, the second to last question is, content teachers. I know that you've been speaking about uh, Lang and Lit, so language and literature classes. So what about reading and content classes like my class? So, so yes. Well, you know, I, I think that it, the same things have to happen across all of the content areas, all the disciplines, um, that there are discipline specialists in there. I think that our teaching practices could stay very similar in that I, as a, whether I'm the science teacher or the social studies teacher, I know that I have to lay and build with my students a base of language. Language is at the center of everything that we're doing. And I don't mean those old language activities like some teachers used to involve me in where that you just copy words off of the board. I'm talking about using language. And that was the example that you could have a genius hour in any discipline that you're talking about. We could be talking about topics in science or social science and um, lay language as our base and just start, let's find, we could have some fun and find out all the words we could find that relate to this and teach each other some of these language, some of these words in context, because you've got to have a strong language base for anything that it is that you're learning. And so that kind of independent learning um, it gives students across the discipline uh, time to apply the skills and strategies that they practice with the teacher. Um, and now they can use them in peer-led conversations, activities. And um, I think that one of the things that we talk about in our book in that chapter is that they, you have to help students have access. Yes. Um, the, t- the text or the topic has to have some appeal to them. The environment has to allow for uh, growth as well as, um, no, I don't want to say failure because I don't think when you don't know something that it's failure. I think growth in increments, incremental growth um, that you can say, oh, I don't know that right now, but but I'm going to find out how to learn that. And I think so the environment has to be conducive to uh, inviting that kind of conversation. It has to have um, tasks that allow people to share ideas or to work sometimes individually because there's sometimes when I just want to read about something on my own. So my environment has to also allow for that. And that happens across the disciplines as well. It, regardless of the content area, regardless of the discipline, the teacher has to share this, the spotlight or the focus with the students. The teacher can't just be... She, dumping knowledge into kids. You set it up and then you invite them in to do the exploration, to ask the questions. Um, And that, you know, people would say, oh, Diane Lapp sounds like a pie in the sky person. Oh no, Diane Lapp's a school teacher. (laughs) And that's how she teaches. So 
All you have to do is come to our school and you can see I do teach like that. I do think about what my learning intentions are. I do plan my um, lessons so that the kids are the investigators. I do stay as the uh, sage on the side, making sure that they have access to the language and helping them so that they, if they struggle, I can offer them a cue or a prompt or a piece of information that will help them to grow. So that is how I think school works and can work effectively um, because you're inviting the students to take the ownership for their learning and everybody gets to work as an individual, but as part of a collaborative uh, group, because that's how we work in the world. I mean, when you're part of a, any organization, one of my sons is learning how to be an electrician right now. And he's part of a team. Yes. And he tells me about working with that team of people. And when I listen to him talk about that, and he and his partner, as they are doing things in buildings right now, um, it's all the kinds of things that we're wanting kids to learn in classrooms, how you share ideas, how you take the lead sometimes, how you pull back, how you have to say, I don't know, and go and investigate. So it's all that all the reality of learning that is part of a classroom. Now, I think the hardest part is the classroom management. Yes. And I know that as a young teacher, classroom management was real hard for me because I had to figure out how to keep everything operative at the same time. But that takes practice too. And I think that schools and principals can support new teachers by one of the things that we're doing at our school, which I think is one of Doug Fisher's most fabulous ideas. He's partnering our new teachers with one of us. Yay. And so, for example, um, a new brand new 11th grade teacher got partnered with me um, because I know how to manage a classroom and do the things that I'm talking about. So she's been my partner all year. Now she'll go solo next year by herself, but she didn't have to struggle and fail and not know how to manage because we expect too much of a brand new teacher. Yes. They have to do all that classroom management, whether it's in the first grade or the ninth grade or the seventh grade or in science or social studies, they have to do all that curriculum sharing as well as 30 kids attending scaffolding all those different levels of knowledge. Um, and they have to have some practice and help in doing that. And I think that becoming a teacher, you can't just get out of college and think you know how to be a teacher. And I think that schools think that of teachers. And that's why so many teachers don't stay. Um, they can't keep it all balanced. They know their content well, but they don't know how to share it well. Um, they know how to make a good lesson but they don't know how to manage it with 30 kids with all different uh, knowledge literacy levels. And so I, you know, I, I think if I want to put a plug in today to administrators, it's somehow at least for a period of day, because I don't think we have enough money. We do probably have enough money, but we're spending it on other things yes. uh, than schools. Like the um, but take your brand new teachers and at least for a period of day, 
let them be partnered with the very best teacher in that they can be partnered with. Give them a chance to practice. That teacher who you're partnered with is the luckiest teacher in the world. <laughs> well, she, she, she and I have had a lot of fun together. So um, she's, she's ready. So. This also happens to uh, inner city schools where often the most inexperienced teachers are put with the most high need kids. And oftentimes that's a right? classroom of a lot of language learners, so it's sad. And maybe that, maybe Doug did it also for that, because, you know, our school is, um, oh, not, a, not the wealthiest of families. And so then that means that all the things that money buys, our kids don't have, um, and all those experiences. And so um, many of them are, you know, are not at grade level with their skills, but they sure can be if the uh, learning is scaffolded for them. And so um, I think Doug wanted our teachers to succeed. And so that's the new model of teaching we have at our school, uh, that partner teaching where um, our new teachers get to spend a little bit of time with those of us who have um, had a little more experience than they. Well, I hope that you and Doug become a superintendent in the future because I would love to see that, <laughs> <laughs> that happen more throughout the schools around the U.S. <laughs> my final question before my closing activity is, um, you the last chapter is about make time for independent reading. Can you talk about that? Yes. Um, to make time for uh, the case to read individually. You know, I think that... Um, that really matters because there has to be a time when you develop a love of reading, when you uh, are part of, I know in English class, it happens if you get to have um, a, a chance to be in a book club. One of the things that has to happen is that, and I know we've had sustained silent reading in schools. Um, they're just one of the ways, and we've done it many different ways in our school. Uh, sometimes we just have a few minutes before a class begins when you have a, something that you're reading and you get a chance to do that reading. And I think whatever way you decide to do it, whatever the management of that matters, because so many kids don't have books at home. Yes. Um, some schools don't have enough books to allow them to take books home. And so they have to learn that reading can be enjoyable and that they can read a magazine or a newspaper or uh, a technical piece of information, anything they're interested in. Oftentimes it is connected to that genius hour. So even if as a classroom, even if it's not a school practice, I encourage every teacher to have at least five minutes of their class. Five minutes is a long time. And so five minutes where all these things are out. You've just, you just, you have a practice of when you come in, you pick up something and you read it. Right. Um, and you get to make that choice yours because you get good at reading by reading. And we've got to have time in school for kids to do that. So, um, and that's what I'm talking about when I say I have lots of things that are easy access to them and that are appealing to them. And mm -hmm. Um, and that you don't always do it at the first five minutes, but you have distributed times throughout uh, your class where, you know, maybe we're going to read five minutes here. Or we're going to close with five minutes of reading. 
Um, They see you reading. You talk to them about something that you're reading. You're reading something with them. They see the joy you have for reading. Well, I have already taken up way too much time. Let's end with this closing. I could have, and I could have gone, like, we could continue. Well, it's fun to talk to you. So I'm glad you're going to come and visit us. Yes. Well, the closing activity is this. It's traffic light teaching. It's a red light, yellow light, and a green light. So a red light is something that you would ask teachers to stop doing. A yellow light is like uh, something that you ask teachers to start doing. Kind of like when you get to a yellow light, you start slowing down. And then a green light is, what do you ask teachers to keep on doing? Um, I I know what I'm going to stop, what I'm going to ask them to stop doing, and that is round robin reading. Uh, Because, and I'm going to ask them to do that, they've named it all different things, popcorn reading. They've also, um, high school teachers are reading a novel and they call on a kid out of the blue to read. And that kid is so nervous. Um, and so I'm going to ask them to stop doing any form of that. I think, yes, do I think kids should be engaged in the reading? Yeah. But I think say to them, we're going to read these few pages tomorrow. And does anybody want to do any of the reading of it? If you do practice it tonight, none of us want to do a cold read. So, yes, the, uh, the intention is good that uh, kids are doing reading, right. but not on-the-spot reading. It's yeah. too, uh, you know, gosh, you, uh, I know how I used to feel, and you probably remember yours. Not one person I know felt good about round-robin reading or popcorn reading. Right. So I'm going to ask them uh, to stop, to completely stop that. Um, I'm going to ask them to slow down on thinking that kids are coming back to school without having gained skills and without new behaviors. So I want you to, I'm going to invite you as my colleagues to do the same thing that I'm going to do to really look at them and see the different kinds of knowledges that they've gained over this time. Look at the maturity that they've acquired. Um, So yeah, I think that's what for me, we have to reimagine who our students are because of the experiences they've been through for the last year and a half. And then, so that was what I want them to continue doing. And what do I want them to slow down? So that's, I don't know if that, I guess the stop was the round robin. The accelerate on, the accelerate for me is building their self-concept, um, building up that you can do it. And not just, I don't mean that you just say, oh, you want to be a doctor? Okay, you can be a doctor. No, saying, what are some of the things that you want to have happen in your life? Let me show you how that could become a possibility. Right. So making reality real future for uh, the futures of children you know i think we say oh everybody can graduate from college maybe not maybe not everybody wants to so and maybe everybody shouldn't you know because i'm very happy my son's becoming an electrician i need an electrician sometimes more than i need a lawyer (laughs) so um it, it reality put reality into their world and show them how they become whomever they want to be, but with a plan, not just, okay, you're going off to college because maybe you aren't. Right. Well, I have three words that really popped out 
when I listened to you for the last hour. It's vulnerable, genius, and the last one, wholehearted. So <laughs> thank you for just gifting us this hour of your book, but your heart and your genius. Thank you. I hope you and I get to meet in person. And again, let me tell you, you are always invited to come out to Health Sciences High. Uh, we would welcome you. Oh, I would be. Before we recap this episode, I have a favor and an invitation. My favor is to ask you to please review this podcast if you found it valuable so that teachers like you become inspired and informed in their advocacy work. My invitation is for you to enroll in my scaffolding learning or teacher collaboration courses. I've taken the principles that I've learned from experts in the field. I've applied them to my classes. I kept the things that worked and I'm sharing all of them in these courses. I hope you consider enrolling. Now onto our recap. This book is worth just getting to learn more about the four factors that make a text complex. The qualitative, the quantitative, task, and readers. I think planning for these factors in mind help us think about reading instruction in a different way. It's not just about the things we can count that make the text complex. It's also about the features like literary devices and the tasks we design for students. I really love hearing about modeling our reading process when we encounter a complex text. I've been trying to do that more and more since I talked to Dr. Diane Lapp. This makes the reading moves visible. We'll have Dr. Diane Lapp back in the future to talk about close reading. In the next episode, we have another giant in the field, Penny Kittle, return to the podcast to talk about her new co-authored book with Kelly Gallagher. Thank you for listening. I'll see you soon. Be safe and be rooted in peace. It's your turn to play Traffic Light Teaching. Tweet at me either your red, yellow, or green light from this particular episode.